Welcome everybody to the Haunted Hacker podcast number, uh, I don't know, Duncan, what number should it be? Shit, man, you got me. Rooting off guard there. Let's go with uh, 87. 87, podcast number 87. Sweet. There you go. Cool. So tonight we have uh, Duncan, the man, the myth, the legend, and uh, <laughs> I'll let him introduce himself here in a minute. Um, a little bit of news for Tech Strong and, and for the group. Um, went and did a talk in Dallas this week for Tech Strong and InnoTech. And uh, it looks like I'll be doing the anniversary show, the one year anniversary show down in Boca Raton in the Tech Strong studio, which would be really cool. Um, and then next year, going on the road show with Alan Schimmel to NFL cities near you um, all year next year. So some really cool developments. Um, other than that, no big, uh, no big news from this corner. So I'll go ahead and get started. So tonight I was lucky enough to get a hold of Duncan. Um, he has some really big uh, accomplishments and, and one of my favorite people on LinkedIn, for sure. Uh, and also part of the top 1% of LinkedIn influencers, which I don't know how you get there, but that's, that's a pretty big accomplishment. Um, and also, uh, we have the ghost in the house from the haunted hacker and uh, a special uh, observer who I'll mention a little bit later during the show. So, uh, Duncan, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, man. And so, I'm Duncan Macklin. I'm uh, the CEO and co-founder of Operandus, where we work with the cybersecurity industries, uh, top vendors, and some of the upcoming startups on helping them to better communicate and understand their audiences and we do that with you know some uh, compelling technical marketing content and some competitive intelligence and analysis uh, but i started this after spending 20 plus years as a consultant to the Fortune 500 Global 2000s on enterprise management and security and really, you know, building a reputation and a brand around those. And as my career progressed and, you know, some things happened with, uh, you know, the mergers and acquisitions of different companies, I decided I wanted to start my own and, and go out. So that's what I've been doing for the past four years. And uh, just really a big supporter of the InfoSec community at large and, you know, helping to support our grassroots efforts, things like B-sides, conferences, our local Houston and greater Texas events, whatnot. But just a huge supporter of the community and what we bring together, what we do to help strengthen one another and, you know, really go after this fight together, you know, because we are all in this thing trying to accomplish the same goal and that's to protect and defend our organizations. Right. You know, so that's who I am, what I'm about. Um, anything else just ask, man, I'm an open book. Very cool. Very cool. So I spent most of my teenage and, and early adult years in uh, Houston myself. Um, oh, did you? 
Yeah, I did actually. Um, I was actually Robert Arnold um, from Channel Two News in Houston. Actually, did my story um, back in 2016 when uh, I left uh, the hacktivism realms. Um, so I'm really familiar with that with that group down there. They have a, a another group called Haha, the yeah. Houston Area Hackers Anonymous. Really good group. Um, yeah, so I'm really familiar kind with those guys. Kind of spun off from the Austins, aha. Aha, yeah. Yep. And those guys are really good too. The, uh, you know, looking at Robert Hansen and H.D. Moore and those guys when they spun up that mm -hmm. in Austin. Really great group. And the one in Austin has a really cool uh, way that they allow people to come to the, to the group. So you have to present. And whether it's, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, you have to, you have to do something. Um, which I think is really cool. It gets people out of the show and gets people involved and actually active. Um, also, it takes away some. I agree to an extent, but yeah. you know, we also have to take into account that you know some of our community members suffer from anxiety and yes. they're not comfortable in that situation, but they still want to participate. They want to be there and to learn from others. So that's why I kind of like the approach that we have have in houston it, it's encouraged but it's not a requirement we don't right. pressure people to do it and honestly as much as i like aha that's the one thing that i do criticize them is you know when you put that expectation and you force it right. that's that's just putting in a, a level of anxiety and stress on someone that they may not be willing to take on and you may be losing that person as yeah. a valued member as a result yeah, so the, I had the, the same anxiety um, and deal with neurodiversity and stuff like that. So when they told me that I was going to be speaking at a conference, um, I was terrified. I'd never spoken in front of people before. Yeah. Um, and it, it really, I mean, it had a physical effect on me. Mm -hmm. um, but I learned ways to, to cope with it and to get around it. Um, you know, looking at isolating myself before the talk and stuff like that. But it's difficult. Like you said, it's difficult to get in front of people. Um, it is. But it's given me a, a way to, to learn how to, to communicate and learn how to socialize, um, which I didn't have those skills like I do now. Um, and I, I was kind of thrown into it, but I, I really enjoyed the, the trip as far as, you know, being able to get out there and actually connect with people. Uh, I think that's super important. Um, so as far as like conferences and stuff go, what, what kind of, what kind of stuff do you enjoy doing as far as conferences? Do you like doing the, the whole DEF CON thing or the smaller, like B-Size and Sky Talks and stuff like that? You know, truth be told, I've never been to DEF CON. No, no. Uh, um, there's just been one cause or reason after another year mm. after year that I've not been able to attend in person. Uh, so the virtual DEF CON experiences that we've been able to have these past couple of years, you know, that's been fantastic. You know, mm -hmm. so I've been able to gain some of that experience, but, um, for myself, I do like the intimacy of the smaller B sides type events. Uh, Houston SecCon is another mm -hmm. one, but with the B sides events, you get just such in intimate experience with the attendees with the speakers a lot more face-to-face one-on-one time uh, to be able to engage you know i love being able to present and share my experience with others 
and being able to have the time to do some of the one-on-ones afterwards and you know find a little cubby hole and sit down and talk and you know go through things you know i i think that's a lot more capable when you're dealing with some of these more grassroots effort conferences versus the larger you know where there's thousands of attendees and you know hundreds of uh, attendees sitting in your talks if not thousands you know it, it just it doesn't scale for that intimacy in, right. in my perspective to- totally agree uh, now, of totally course, agree. i'm saying that having never been to defcon but mm-hmm. i have spearheaded a conference that ended up turning into the microsoft management summit with thousands in attendance so i'm no stranger to that or microsoft ignite with you know thirty thousand people in attendance you know um i i get those types of events and as much as we need those and they are critical to our industry and to our survival um you know there's just different levels of experience and i think we can take uh, i guess pick and choose the, the bits that work best for us from each of those yeah i i really enjoy like the the different types of conferences so i've done you know conferences with law enforcement i've done you know academia type stuff um you know but i I think what i enjoy the most is people who are just interested in security not so much as you know want to go to the big you know label you know whether it be black hat or whatever um, and I think that's kind of why we spun up this group, the Haunted Hackers, that, you know, got tired of looking at all the other groups and just wanted to spin something up from the ground, you know, something pure and something real. Um, and we kind of keep the podcast like that, too. You know, one of my first concerns when we started was, what can I say and what can I say? But what was cool is that TechStrong, you know, gave me creative freedom and, and was able to just, we could just be us. You know, and so kind of like documenting the history of, of cybersecurity and, and all the players that were involved is really important to me because I think that the longer we go and the more that cybersecurity evolves as an industry, it I kind of feel like we're losing touch with some of where it started from. And uh, to me, that's super important to be able to, you know, record that and, and share that with people coming in. Because, uh, you know, being in the industry, I think this is like my 24th or 25th year. Um, yeah, I've seen it change a lot, some for the good and some for the absolute horrible. Um, so, you know, what, what is your take on on the environment right now? Like looking back in the days of, of when this first started to get going and, you know, when we were still playing with BBSs and stuff like that and then where it's come to now. It's interesting that you say playing with BBSs because I was one of the largest BBSs in the state of Tennessee back during the early 90s, mm-hmm. um, running a Wildcat system with a couple of robo boards, uh, had four incoming lines, nice. uh, FidoNet. Mm-hmm. You know, so we essentially had internet email back in 1992, 93. Mm-hmm. And, you know, looking at the natural progression and transformation of this industry and where we've come from and where we're at today, looking at it from a pure 
security perspective, if you look at where we were, let's just say at the Y2K, mm-hmm. right? So year 2000. I remember that night. After the panic attacks, you know, then we started seeing SQL Slammer, you know, all the other, you know, Melissa variants. Netsky. You know, and then what ended up coming out of all of that was the trustworthy computing initiative, right? From Bill Gates and him sending that memorandum that basically called a shutdown to any new coding. It was a six month halt code review of everything, you know, from the Windows operating system to SQL Server, Exchange, the whole product right complete halt in any new coding just a code review and really getting into secure by design right and that started this whole paradigm shift in how we approach things and then of course came patch tuesday out of that right so now we're starting to get more proactive and having a maintenance release cycle that could be predicted uh, and resources assigned and knowing how we're going to approach cybersecurity within our organizations. And then other industry big players like Oracle and Adobe and others started latching on to Patch Tuesday and they were updating their products, whether if it was every month or every quarter, but on that Tuesday, second Tuesday of the month. And we all started to get in line with expectations. However, corporations were still very slow to adopt the patching release cycles. And we still are to this day, you know, some 20 years later, we're still very slow to do what we know we need to be doing because we're so fearful of X, Y, or Z you know, not working properly with our legacy applications. Well, get the fuck over it. Look mm-hmm. at what the real risk factor is here, folks. You know, you know, do your pros and cons and your risk analysis, but we've got to do a better job with this stuff. Um, you know, but if I were to have to say where we're at today versus where we were 20 years ago, yeah leaps and bounds you know we have secure software development life cycles we have you know agile that's including you know the the security reviews and all that stuff but when it comes to just some of the basic elements you know how many organizations out there if we were to take a poll right now are actually actively patching their third-party products in the same release cycle as they are their microsoft products every month yeah I guarantee you it's going to be slim. Very, very slim. Um, So I'll I'll ask you, what do you think we need to be doing to better improve our security posture as a whole? And, and, you know, do you think we're really any better off today than we were 20 years ago? To to be honest with you, I think we're at the same spot we're at 20 years ago. Um, We still have the same variants that, you know, if you, if you, throw up a honeypot and, and watch the traffic, you still see SQL Slammer floating around the internet. Um, you still see Blaster. Um, we, we haven't gotten any better at protection. 
and we haven't gotten any better at uh, cybersecurity awareness, making people, you know, educating people. And I think that's a big part of our failure is the education piece of it. Uh, because for so long, when we had started the industry, it was like the people who had the knowledge hoarded it because it was, it was, it was uh, kind of like job, job security, you know, or position or, you know, reputation security. Um, and we're starting to see a little bit of that change. But in general, I, I still think that, that we are failing at keeping people educated and not just people in the industry, but this is a global problem now. Before it was a business problem, right? And now that we've made technology so available to everybody, it's become a global initiative, but we haven't gotten to the citizen and, and, and the people level yet. And I think that's, that's a huge failure. I think that, you know, as long as we focus on just the industry and protecting companies and protecting money, um, we're failing. Now, when we start protecting people as a community, that's when we'll see a change, I think. Um, but you know, I, think, I think we're pretty far off. I did a, um, a post on LinkedIn this past week. Um, I actually did two posts. I did one that was technical and I did one that was people-oriented. And what I found, and this is my theory, is that as an industry, we're tired of seeing ones and zeros. We're tired of seeing the failures. We're tired of seeing technology-based uh, communication. Um, and the reason why I say that is because I did a technical post. It got like 2,000 views, right? I did a post about me and my first pen testing boss and our friendship and how it lasted you know, 20 years. 16,000 views. You know, to me, that tells me that, that people want to hear stories about people not just about technology. And I think if we reach out to more people like that, I think things will change a little bit. Uh, I agree. And, you know, security at the individual level mm -hmm. tends to only matter after, after they the become fact. a victim, you know, and we've got to do something to change that expectation and to make security something that does matter to the masses before they become victims of things like ransomware or identity theft or you know uh, having patient health information sacrificed because you know they didn't properly dispose of a prescription bottle or what have you you know there's all kinds of ways that the that the individual, that the general, you know, Joe Blow out there, uh, you know, can become the victim of some type of cyber attack. And mm -hmm. I think it's our responsibility as security practitioners to help carry the message out into the community and to make them more educated about safe havens and, and ways to protect their selves and their data. Uh, you know, I bear that burden of responsibility myself, and I think there's things that we can do to help, you know, whether if it's through like LinkedIn, you know, just putting stuff out there that isn't necessarily industry related, but just helpful to the average person. Every one of my LinkedIn posts is available to anybody. It's not know. just my connections, right? Because what I put out there. I don't put anything on LinkedIn unless I intend for everybody in the world to be able to see it, right? It, it's out there. So, yeah, there's that expectation of zero privacy. Yep. Uh, 
so anybody can see it and i i put stuff out there that i hope the average consumer or individual will see mm -hmm. and think about you know in their day-to-day -day lives uh but i think there's more that we can do as an industry and i think if let's just say every b-sides organization around the world in between their annual events took on the mission of educating their local community going into their libraries and holding you know cybersecurity, you know ask us anything or you know do little mini trainings on ways that you know community members can protect their laptops or you know connect their wi-fi and you know securely configure it those kinds of things mm -hmm. if we took on that mission in between our annual events can you imagine the impact that would have on the global cybersecurity, oh, for sure, for sure, a huge impact. You know, and one of the things that, that I try to do, one of the posts I did this week was um, about Amazon's new uh, line of, of Alexa and you know Alexa type products. And um, the robot. Yeah, the robot. You know, because because to me, uh, people need to know about that stuff. You know, and and do you want those eyes in your house? Do do you want that type of surveillance going on internally. And so I try to educate people on that, you know, and I post videos of hacking Android phones and stuff like that. So that, because a lot of the stuff that, that we do, um, people look at it and, and they see it on TV, but they think it's only in the movies and they don't think it's real. But then when you show it to them, you know, right there in their face, it's like, oh shit, this is real. I'm like, yeah, like there's a whole nother world past what you see. Um, and I let think to show you what I can do with this little watch that I have on my wrist, you know, <laughs> right? let me be off all of these devices and, and rickroll you, yep. uh, you know, and that goes into it, you know, just simple things like should these IOT devices be existing on the same home network that your data driven devices are sitting on or should they be segmented you know that little guest network that shows up on your wi-fi router it's there for a reason folks maybe yeah. you need to segment take all your iot devices toss it over to that network keep your data devices like your laptops and your you know plex servers or what else and you know keep that over here you know where the two don't touch so if something does happen if there is some you know some botnet for example that decides to pwn all of your alexa devices and wreak havoc against the world you know you're not going to be compromising your data in the process and right. i think we need to just help folks understand these things and, and we need to do it for the for the better of the internet as well because the more of these iot devices that come out and i think that i can't remember how many billions they're estimating by the end of 2022 but the more of these devices that get deployed on the internet in people's homes they're creating a bigger attack surface as well as creating a bigger target environment to take for people to take over and use those iot devices against companies or governments, you know, with denial of service or, or, you know, different types of attacks, because the least amount of security is always put into the consumer products. And I mean, that's just across the board cameras, everything, Alexa. And I think we saw with Mariah Botnet that, you know, those things that we have at home really are not that safe. They, they don't 
companies don't make those products with security in mind. They, they make them with, with convenience and price tags. That's it. Yeah. The one thing that I will say has improved immensely as far as IoT is mm -hmm. default passwords. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, if we look back even as recent as two or three years ago, these mm -hmm. IoT devices were being shipped out from the manufacturers, all rubber stamped with the same username and password, admin, 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 password. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And today, I think post Mirai and a lot of the other type of botnets, we've come to understand that's a huge security risk. And mm -hmm. for the most part, all these IoT device manufacturers have gotten on board with unique username and password combinations as these devices are being you know, shipped out from the manufacturers. So thank God we at least have that. But we also need you know, to just keep the average consumer aware of these types of things so that they do look at that when they are buying anything they're connected to their network. They are making sure that there is some type of unique username and password, even if they're having to manufacture or not manufacture, but come up with that themselves uh, to help defend against these types of, you know, internet born attacks. So totally. I will, I will give the industry some credit in that regard. Yeah. I mean, the, the manufacturers are getting a little bit better. Um, I know after the big compromise of, of Mirai botnet, they started making, um, the passwords where you have to create a password before you can even go into the setup, um, which I think is really good. Uh, Comcast was interesting. So I was doing some work on, on research on Comcast devices and they had a hidden, um, tech credentials in their, uh, routers. Um, I won't leak it on air, but it was um, a, a Comcast tech uh, profile and it was on every business router. So you could basically use the same credentials on every business router that had Comcast. Um, and I, you know, did a thing on channel two when they did my story, I, I showed them how it's how easy it is to um, disable their uh, alarm system and video cameras with just MDK three and shut everything down. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's, some things are getting better and some things that aren't, but I think in all, like people are starting to see that these devices are, are used for other purposes. Um, you know, and that's part of what I talked about in, in my talk in Dallas was I was talking about IOT and I was talking about different devices, vulnerabilities and whatnot. And I had a guy ask me, he says, um, you know, what kind of router should I get? And I said, well, it depends, you know, there's several different features and different routers, yeah, but right. what I would suggest is once you pick your router, go on to the CVE list and look and see if there's a, you know, a CVE for that router um, and what you need to do to lock it down before you even buy it, you know, know what you're buying and not just buy blindly. Because I think a lot of people, you know, it's just like the cybersecurity industry. When we, when there's a new platform out shiny, it's new, it's, you know, everybody wants it. They just run out and get it. You know, AI, for instance, yeah. you know, and you look at consumers, they're no different. You, they see it on the internet, you know, they see it on TV and the commercials are like, Oh, got to have one. So before even before even buying it, you know they're they're stepping into a, a trap because I'm sure that there's vulnerabilities already released about the firmware before it even hits the shelves. Yeah, um, and that's a really smart point because it, if you ask folks if they look at Amazon reviews before making a purchase, or you know Best Buy, do they look at their reviews? Of, of course, we're 
you know, going to take a look and see what others are saying about the product. Why wouldn't we do the same thing to make sure that we're getting a secure product, or at least we know what to patch as soon as we right. get it, you know, in our hands. So yeah, that's a very smart, smart recommendation. Yeah. I'm a, so cyber awareness month kicked off, I guess, yesterday. Um, so, so I'm giving uh, yeah. one one talk for uh, the London police, I think, on Wednesday, um, and then one for the British Computing so uh, Society, and then a couple others for like CPAs, and and then one for ICE. Um, so this month is like really heavy for awareness, and I think that you know people need to educate themselves as well, like you know being able to know what the CVE list actually is. Um, because I guarantee you, if you ask any consumer, do you know, do you know where to find vulnerabilities about your device? No clue. Nope. So that's one of the things I'm trying to push is people to enable themselves and actually like, you know, educate themselves and know where to go. Um, and I think that's exactly. really important. Also, I think that, you know, with cybersecurity awareness month, you know, like mental health and, and, and stuff like that also kicks off this month. Um, which I think in our industry is like super important because with all of the stuff that we do and all the things we're involved in, um, we have little time for ourselves. And I've seen myself burn the candle at both ends and like really stress myself out um, and giving, 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 but not taking a chance to, you know, break off and, and have time for myself. So how do you balance all the things that you do with Operandus and, and everything else and, and have time for yourself? Uh, I'm really poor at it yeah. to tell you the truth. Um, I'm trying to get much better because my health is becoming more and more of a focus over these past few years. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I'm like you, I tend to burn the candle at both ends and in between, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm trying to structure my days where I have breakpoints throughout the day that I assign time for myself to start my day properly with a defined routine that I manage, not everybody else who's coming at me. Mm -hmm. I plan breaks during the day and then I take time also for education, you know, during my week, you know, so I keep myself fresh, but I keep myself motivated. I keep myself rested. Um, and just, I'm actually using some of the new features of M365. Microsoft started very recently this Viva, where it will schedule time on your calendar for these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So I actually have time blocked out. You know, at the beginning of my day, I have 15 minute breaks built into my day. I have a two hours uh, dedicated per week, you know, to education. You know, so I try to use the technology to help me get away from the technology, so to <laughs> <Right>. speak. <laughs> but it, it's what's working for me. And, you know, um trying to pay more attention to both my physical and mental health. Mm -hmm. um, because those are critical things for us. And you know, as well as I do, what the burn rate is in our industry. And it's because of things like this. We tend to go 24-7 because there isn't any rest 
to the workload. We can sit there and work as long as we want to because the work will continue to exist. Oh yeah. And unless we take time away and mm. step away forcefully, we can just keep getting sucked right back into that vacuum and mm. it's gets harder and harder to push away the longer you stay in there because you just get so weakened down by it all. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And especially when the pandemic hit, you know, the lockdown gave me a chance to start some research that I wanted to do, but it also created this environment where I never really stopped working until I fell asleep. Um, and I think that that wears on you after a while, I got really sick. Um, so one of the things that I do now is, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I try to get into like a mindfulness type uh, mood where, you know, I set myself and I put myself in the present. And I try to stay that way, you know, as much as I can through the day, um, because I can get wrapped up in that whole hamster wheel of, oh, this is tomorrow. And I got, I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do this. And, and things start piling on before I know it. Like, I'm just completely a mess. Just spinning your wheels. Yeah. So I think it's super important and getting out like in nature and stuff, you know, getting away from technology every once in a while and just like breathing. You know, I think it's super important because the, the way that I, the way I coin it is the people in the industry that, you know, get out there the most and do the most, they're kind of like shooting stars, right? They burn really, really bright, but also burn really, really quick. And then they go out. I mean, I've seen a lot of my friends that have passed away in the past year or two, um, either from health issues or from mental health issues and, and ended their lives. Um, but they, you know, they they burn really quick and then they're gone. And I don't want to be one of those numbers and, and I don't want anybody else to, to have to go through that. So I try to try to stay on some sort of regiment of, you know, taking a break every so often, like you said, I think that's really important. Agreed. Absolutely. Um, so you I, have I this, wish there were more opportunities to take longer yeah. breaks. Yeah, absolutely. See, we were talking a while back and I knew that you had been from San Antonio and now you're in Houston and you're doing some RV living now, Yeah, which dude, that, that is so fascinating to me. So me and my roommate, Nomad, he's on right now. Um, we're looking at those types of setups with like sprinters or, or, or with RVs. Tell me about your setup, man. I'm really interested to know what it's like. Okay. So this started three years ago. Hmm. Uh, my wife and I, who she's on here as well, but um, we spent about six months researching this stuff and mm -hmm. watched hundreds of hours of YouTube videos with, mm -hmm. you know, reviews of different RVs and just what the whole RV life, you know, hashtag RV life was yeah. all about. And, you know, getting into different, uh, couples who were out there living this lifestyle and following their YouTube channels and everything else. And we decided, you know what, screw it, let's do it. So we sold off, you know, pretty much everything we had, you know, became uh, very much minimalist and, you know, getting down to bare essentials. And then we bought a 30 foot RV, right? A bumper pole. So one of the ones that you pull behind a pickup truck, which mm. we already had. Um, so today I'm sitting here at my you know 60 inch 
desk. I have three curved monitors. I'm looking out my window, you know, nice Texas skies and trees and whatnot. But this is my lifestyle. Um, you know, we, unfortunately, when we started this, uh, it was early on days of operandus and I had a different business model than what we are today. You know, the, our customers in the market kind of defined what I do and what operandus is all about, but we started off a little bit different. Um, mm -hmm. And the plan was ultimately for us to travel around the country and really just experience what is out there. And unfortunately, um, my physical health took a turn for the worse. And uh, I have a disability now that is really limiting me physically. Uh, um, having very limited use of my extremities, uh, I'm starting to get paralysis in my hands. Uh, I have diabetic neuropathy throughout my arms and legs. Um, so for me, getting around is very difficult. Getting outside and being physical, like, you know, in my 30s, you would find me kayaking town lake, geocaching, hiking the hill country in Texas, you know, just being out there, being cold, sweating it off, you know, being top as eight, not anymore. You know, I, I couldn't hold an oar in my hands and paddle a canoe to save my life right now. But, um, you know, we're still living the RV life. So we started out, spent almost a year in New Brumfels, right along the Guadalupe River. Love that. Then we decided we wanted a little bit of a change of scenery. So we headed down to Florida and we were in Ocala, Florida for just about a year. And this was when COVID started just coming into the news and really hitting into the US. So I told my wife, we need to get our asses back to Texas right quick because I could tell there was going to start being some travel bans and yep. I did not want to be stuck outside the state of Texas. So we packed up, hauled ass and got back to Texas two days before Governor Abbott shut down I-10 coming in from the Louisiana side because everything was popping off in New Orleans mm -hmm. with massive COVID infections. So he was trying to containerize it. So we decided we wanted a change of pace. Now, you said earlier I'm from San Antonio. I'm going to correct you. I'm actually from technically Austin, spent 10 years there, then had to come to Houston because I was a director for a startup, had to keep an eye on my children, so to speak. Right. So I moved to Houston to be in the office more frequently and fell in love with Midtown Houston. So I oh, yeah. ended up spending 10 years there. Mm -hmm. So 
when we came back, we wanted just to change a pace. And that's one of the great things about the RV lifestyle. You can just pick and choose wherever the hell you want to be and, you know, pop in. So we decided on San Antonio because my wife is originally from that area. And, you know, figure we'd just give it a shot. Well, we got to San Antonio and, well, you can imagine with COVID, we weren't going anywhere. So we stayed there for a year and a half. And now we decided, let's get back to Houston. That's who we are. That's where we want to be. So last month, we decided to make the trek and here we are back in Houston. But yeah, I highly recommend the RV lifestyle to anybody that has the interest. Even if you have kids, we see families with children RVing all the time. This resort that we're in right now, you know, there's a swimming pool, there's a hot tub, mm -hmm. there's, you know, dog park, you know, we have a stocked pond sitting right out here that I can go cast the line and it is catch and release. Yeah. But, uh, you know, whatever, just find whatever it is you're looking for and pack up and go out there and seek it. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, yeah, I worked in the uh, northwest side of Houston uh, over in the KDI-10 area um, for oil and gas. And, you know, Houston's a nice place, um, but, you know, it's so busy. And I think that part of what stressed me out in my early career was spending two and three hours on the road in traffic. And it was just mind-numbing. By the See, time that's I got why to I stayed in Midtown. I could yeah. walk to my office. It yeah. Was literally nine tenths of a mile mm -hmm. from my flat in Midtown to my office in the Houston Technology Center right there at Bagby and I tap. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was living in Clear Lake and commuting to Katy every day. So you're looking at yeah, two hours in the morning, two hours at night. So my day was about twelve hours a day. So, you know, it really stress, it stresses you out. And a lot of people don't understand the more time you spend in the car. I mean, you're already working. Your mind is already going. And then by the time you get to work, you need a break just to get to work. Um, yeah. So once the pandemic hit, I was like, thank God, you know, we can all work from home and, and people can relax a little bit. But what's bad is a lot of companies, when they look at the worker working from home, they figure since you're at home and you're relaxed, that they can put more stuff on your plate and make yeah. the day longer and you never really disconnect you know that's the hard part um and so that's something for anybody out there that's a manager mm. that has reports let me let me give you a little tidbit here okay because you just hit something that's a real sticking point for me when you start sending emails after hours you're placing that expectation on your employees to respond after hours. And that's unacceptable to me. Get used to delayed sends. You know, find that feature in Outlook, find that feature in Gmail and learn how to delay the sending of your messages to your direct reports until it's office hours, you know, just because you're up and working at 11 o'clock on a Saturday evening doesn't mean that your employees should be as well. You know, so take that expectation. Don't be sending emails to them because you immediately place that expectation. And that's just a bullshit business practice. I'm sorry. You, it's you a nerve point. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's one of my pet peeves is when I get an email like 
4 a.m. or 2 a.m., you know, from whoever. It doesn't even have to be an employer. It can be anybody. And it's like, what makes you think that I'm going to be up at 4 a.m. to take your email? Right. And then you expect me to call you at my, my biggest pet peeve is, is when somebody sets a meeting time for 8 a.m. Oh, geez. It's like, no, sir. you know, if oh. you're in an office, are you really going to have a meeting at 8 a.m.? No, we're just coming into work. You know, like, and be mindful of time zones as well. Oh. Just because you're on the <laughs> East Coast and you want to fire off at nine o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. if you have teammates that are on the West Coast, you know, have some consideration, folks. Yeah. You know, and I'm dealing with international clients, so I have to be cognizant from Tel Aviv mm-hmm. to you know Belfast to you know the east coast and the west coast all the way down to australia so you know i'm having to be real sensitive and trying to plan ahead and i'll even email ahead Mm -hmm. of time and ask do you mind if i set this meeting at this time because i know it's going to have this impact on you yeah and get that approval from them beforehand or give them the opportunity to say no do you mind scheduling it for a different time and if not, you know, use some of the technology tools available. You know, if you're using Outlook client, you know, it has that meeting option available, or you can use things like I think it's dateandtime.com. Yeah. You know, meeting planning. Yeah, that's that's really difficult. And learning how to say no is another hard part for me. Um, I do a lot of my speaking overseas in London, South Africa, Australia, wherever, Cyprus in like a couple of weeks. And I think the hardest part for me is when they schedule it and they schedule on their time zone and it ends up being 4 a.m. for me. It's difficult because I really want to do those those engagements for them because it means a lot to me. But learning how to say no is one of those things in my career that I have yet to accomplish. And, you know, I think that plays a lot on my mental health as well. Because there's, there's, there's sometimes when I get frustrated because, you know, someone will schedule a meeting for 4 a.m. Um, but it's part, partially my fault because I don't push back. You know, I, I want to do what I can for people, but I sacrifice myself for it a lot. Um, you know, and it, you got to find that, that, that balance, I guess. And I, I still haven't found that quite yet. Um, I'm with you there because for me, it's, am I risking a potential impact Mm -hmm. Uh, am i potentially going to lose this business customer because i'm pushing back too much because of those expectations they're putting on me right but you're right it's a healthy balance and it's saying no with an explanation right you know it's not just being a dick and saying no i'm not going to do it you know find another time Mm -hmm. it's no i can't do it because X, Y, Z, and and giving them a a reasonable explanation so that they understand not only this time why it's not possible, Mm -hmm. but they'll also bring that into consideration the next time something like that comes up as well. Absolutely. And to me, you know, health and and mental health are super important. You know, over the past couple of years, um, part of the reason why I'm back in the States is because I was diagnosed with epilepsy. And the medication itself takes a toll on me, you know, it makes me really tired, um, you know, and just the risk of wearing myself out and putting myself in, the, in a situation where I could potentially have another seizure, you know, 
a lot of people don't take into consideration. You know, I do my best to, to limit what I do so I don't fall back into that trap. But, you know, once you, once you start doing something in your career and it takes off and, and people get involved with it, it's almost like you feel you have to do it because if you step back, you're afraid of losing that edge or, or afraid of losing that, that potential uh, platform to, to speak from. Um, and, I, you know, I just ran into this platform and, and you know, the ability to, to be able to speak to people around the world just a couple of years ago. So I'm still in that. I feel like I'm struggling. I feel like I'm clawing my way to the top type deal. And, it, you know, I feel like if I turn something down, then, then I may not get another opportunity. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things you, you play that in your head. Then you also have to deal with like imposter syndrome and, and everything else that goes along with it. Um, but, you know, a lot of people don't understand that, you know, it, they, they know what they need and they know what they want and they don't care what goes on with you. They have immediate needs. By God, you're going to fill it. Um, so, yeah, I just, you know, other employers out there that are listening, I would highly suggest that, you know, you take those things into consideration, even though it's a pandemic. Think about the stress that the pandemic causes alone with people with families, potential of kids and, and spouses getting COVID and what it could do to a family. Um, take that in consideration and, you know, show some kindness and, and uh, you know, give people a break every once in a while. Um, so t tell me on your on your RV, I'm really interested to know about your Internet connection and, and how you run that technology in your RV. Okay, so that depends on really where you're going to be at and what the expectation is, mm -hmm. right? So if, if you're just really working on your own, there's not a lot of demand for high speed internet connectivity, then you can typically get away with having a 5G MiFi type device, you know, right. one of those from Verizon. And, as long as you're in a good reception location, then, you know, that could suffice. Mm. Uh, right now, we are at a location that has AT&T fiber with, uh, you know, Ethernet to the pedestal. Right? Really? So we have a pedestal that has our 50 amp hookup, our 20 amp hookup, and we have Google fiber. So I had a friend of mine who's a contractor here in houston come over and he and i did the wiring because i, I our rv is fitted for coax on the exterior so all we'd have to do is hook up a coax and you know we could get like comcast right uh tv and internet that way but with at&t we didn't have a um ethernet right we didn't have a cat five or cat you know 6e connection so we brought one in and wired all that up so i have you know basically google fiber right now it's not an issue it just depends on where you're at and what the options are and what your requirements are right um, you know but typically if you're just doing something like blm bureau of land management mm -hmm. and you're out there in the desert you know maybe a 5g device <laughs> I, highly doubtful uh so you're probably falling back to 3g or 4g networks mm -hmm. um sat phones with sat phones, a yeah. uh, data link but 
you know, uh, for the most part, it's just going to depend on where you're at and what your requirements are. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that we battled um, when I first got back to the states. I moved to Alabama with my friend Nomad, and uh, we had a hell of a time. We're on LTE at one point, and it was just the worst experience ever. Um, podcast, I I couldn't make it through a podcast without dropping off and having to reconnect at least two or three times. It was horrible, yeah. um, and that was my biggest concern. Is like you know, going, going on the road, you know, what that would be like. And, and, you know, the, the, if I was going to be able to, to host a podcast on the road, well, but I think, to, I think it's possible. You know, the other thing is like when we were in Ocala, I was still doing cyber speaks live actually, mm-hmm. you know, kind of where it all kicked off to a certain extent. And we would go into the local library and mm-hmm. use one of their rooms Oh, cool. And basically just close ourselves off from everything else that was going on inside the library, but we had access to their, you know, uh, high-speed internet access, and we would just do the recordings there. So there's other ways that you can still take care of what you need to on a weekly basis, you know, with podcasting and stuff, but, you know, have otherwise limited internet access inside the RV. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I was doing the podcast from a hotel when I first got to Tennessee. And, uh, you know, now I'm on a, a short term lease in this place and it has decent internet connection. Um, but, you You're know, in Tennessee, I am actually I'm in Chattanooga right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah my uh, actually, my daughter's in Chattanooga this weekend. Oh, really? <laughs> my youngest one. Yeah, I have three daughters. They're all in Tennessee. Uh, two are in the Nashville area, one's in Knoxville, but I spent uh, from 15 until 30 in the Nashville, Franklin area. Nice, nice. Yeah, I was uh, I came to uh, Tennessee a couple months ago, and uh, mostly, the, you know, for the doctors and, and stuff like that that are close, because um, I also have a heart, heart issue that I have to maintain. Um, so, you know, just, it makes sense to be in a more metropolitan sort of, it's not really a big town, but it's not a little town either. It's kind of, it's kind of Chattanooga is a, a kind of a unique place to, yeah. to be. I've been um, many times. Yeah. It's a beautiful place. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff to do. I, last night I was walking down the street, um, just got pizza and ran into the comedian Theo Vaughn after his, uh, his set at the Tivoli just walking home and, and there he was sitting on the, sitting on the corner, talking to a bunch of people on the street, you know, you just cool things like that happen a lot, you know, just because it's kind of a small town. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting. And man, I'm so glad that you decided to be on the show and, uh, man, you're absolutely. Than- Thank you for having me. It's been an extreme pleasure. Absolutely. And, uh, you're welcome back anytime, you know, as a guest, or if you want to come on and help me interview somebody, absolutely. I always invite, you know, the previous guests to come on and anytime they want and help me interview people or, or, you know, just be part of the show. Um, I know there's one guy, uh, that's kind of sitting in the shadows and, uh, I want to introduce him before we end the, uh, the podcast. And his name is Ian Murphy. Um, Ian, are you, uh, are you there? Well, anyways, Ian is on, um, and he is going to be an integral part of my, uh, hacking and privacy, uh, advocate career. Um, so he'll be, well, sp- hi, good afternoon. Hey, Ian, how are you? It's good to talk to you. Another fun day. 
how. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Well, um, you know, I, was, I wanted to introduce you to uh, everybody and uh, let them know that we have some things coming up. I, I won't dump it now. I won't tell. I won't tease people, but there's a lot of uh, good things that we're going to be doing together. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, guys, that's the end of the hour and the end of the podcast. And uh, I hope everybody has a fantastic well, weekend. Hold on, hold on. Go ahead, Duncan. Let me back up real quick. Because, sure. You know, Ian, you know, I have a fairly good knowledge about Mr. Murphy and his mm -hmm. background, but, you know, it is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And that it is. They, you know, Ian has a pretty good way of helping our industry and the general public in that regard you know do you mind uh, i just think it would be a good opportunity for him to just give a 30 second elevator pitch about what he's doing to help with cybersecurity awareness in general sure absolutely absolutely thanks for jumping in there uh, duncan ian do you want to be on video or you just want to do it through audio sure let's do video all right sure I look like hell, but what the hell? <laughs> Don't we all? Uh, you you start the. There you go. You got to start the video. Um, actually, you're a co-host. You should be able to just pop your video on. I'm starting video. Okay. It shows that it's still still muted. Doesn't show that it's on. Well, well, while, it's, while it's playing this, okay. let's, let's sure. get something clear here. Sure. I've been in this industry uh, for many, many, many years, decades. And I have seen the ignorance, the avarice, and the outright stupidity. And even when it slaps them in the face, they don't go ahead and understand it and corporations and governments consider security to be nothing more than a loss leader until they get hit then they call the cios and the cisos onto the carpet and go what the hell happened jim tell me what happened bill and they respond Remember when we asked you for an additional $2 million for cybersecurity and you said <laughs> no? Well, guess what? You lost because you wouldn't listen. And the problems that are happening today are literally exponentially increasing to a point where I think everybody should be at DEF CON too. The, I have friends who had their accounts constantly hacked. And I find that uh, it's not due to their ignorance. It's also due to the providers. And I was just told to preach, Ian. That's what I was just told, preach, Ian. One of the things that I find most disturbing in the entire industry is that none of them realize that security is an asset. 
and then when they have to go ahead and provide credit monitoring services or other things uh, to quell the savage beast in the stock market, and half of these corporations will not reveal that they have been hacked mm-hmm. because it affects their stock. So, and if you look at the social media platforms, uh, i.e. Facebook, for example, mm-hmm. it is one of the largest nightmares in, in this country. And the Facebook files from the Wall Street Journal are an eye-opening read. And then the new book called The Ugly Truth by two New York Times reporters spells it out in black and white. But let's remember that at my age, which is grossly, unfortunately, 40 years above most of you, I used to sit around and watch <clears throat> atomic bomb above ground tests as a child. Now, I tell people I'm technically older than dirt, but I am technically older than NASA. Mm-hmm. So I have seen many, many things in my lifetime. And I have been trained by some of the finest in the industry, both military and commercial. And I have had the privilege of even being on the cover of the Wall Street Journal, uh, People Magazine, etc. cetera. Uh, I appreciate this opportunity to speak right now. And I'm telling all of you, don't trust a damn thing out here because zero trust is now becoming the new buzzword yep. amongst everybody because you can't trust anything mm-hmm. and no matter what your security is is little miscreants out there be them russian hackers chinese hackers north korean hackers nation states mm-hmm. you know the 14 year old sitting around going let me try this mm-hmm. and he gets in they all get their clocks cleaned. And with that, I will let you go ahead and uh, do your thing. And I, I appreciate pre- this opportunity for speaking. I, I appreciate you. And I look forward to uh, doing our work together and, and our projects in the future. Um, so I, I look at Ian as my Obi-Wan Kenobi now. So look for some stuff for me and Ian in the future. Um, Duncan, I really appreciate you being on again. Uh, it's really been awesome. And, uh, hopefully we can, we can get together and do this again sometime soon. Um, tell everybody in, uh, in Houston, I said, hello, all the guys at, uh, haha and, uh, give, give everybody my best and, uh, take care of yourself, man. Uh, and I hope to speak to you in the future with that yeah, guys. Absolutely. You too. I appreciate it, man. Me too. Absolutely. So with that, I'm going to close it out. You guys have a good weekend and Haunted is out. See you guys next time. Yes, sir.